Welcome to El Petróleo es Nuestro, Episode 4, The Golden Age of Pemex. I'm Brandon Seal. In the last episode, Mexican President Lázaro Cárdenas did battle with the foreign oil companies and he kicked their ass. But like a dog that had finally caught a garbage truck, now Mexico had to figure out how to run an oil industry. The Mexican government had made a few stunted attempts at forming a national oil company before the expropriation. In 1926, the government incorporated the Control de Administración del Petróleo Nacional, which would go on to produce 7,000 barrels of oil. Total. Over a three-year period. That's about as much as the Cerro Azul No. 4 produced in its first 30 minutes. The second attempt at a national oil company came in 1933, with a 50% investment by the government in Petróleos de México, or Petromex, matched by an equal amount of capital subscribed by the National Railway, Central Bank, and Sugar Corporations. I've alluded to this a little bit in previous episodes, but note that even before the expropriation, there always existed this corporatist impulse in Mexico to create a national oil company as a sort of public-private partnership, in much the same way that many large industries in Mexico, for example, railroads, steel, telegraph, telephone, etc., were also developed. After the March 18, 1938 expropriation of the foreign oil company's properties, however, a national oil company took on increased urgency. So on June 7, 1938, President Cardenas formed Petróleos Mexicanos, or Pemex for short. For the poetically inclined, it's fun to play with the different implications of the new national oil company's name, translated as Mexican Petroleum, and the earlier iteration, or Petroleum of Mexico. I'm not quite sure if I can articulate the distinction, but Petróleos Mexicanos seems to fit the spirit of 1938 well. As soon as it was formed, however, Pemex found itself in a management crisis. Who would run the national oil industry? The oil workers, in whose name the expropriation had been undertaken, or the government, who had actually carried it out? When Cardenas had nationalized the railroads in 1935, he had set up a workers' administration to run it. Pemex seemed to be going down this same path initially, with the oil workers' union electing the first managers of the national oil company. But output quickly began to suffer as managers became more concerned with growing their power base, even as production plummeted. By the end of 1938, nearly 25% of the producing wells in Mexico had been shut in, even as personnel swelled from 15,895 workers in April of 1938 to 23,073 workers by October of 1939. The Cardenas administration could see where things were headed, and in 1940 announced a hiring freeze and layoffs. The oil workers union reacted by taking the management question to the same labor board that had backed them up during the expropriation. This time, however, the board ruled against the union and upheld the layoffs, settling for good the question of who would run Pemex, to wit, the government. In 1942, the now government-managed Pemex and the oil workers union reached the first collective bargaining agreement. Under that agreement, the oil workers' union would receive four of the nine seats on Pemex's board, the other five typically falling to ministers of the most important cabinet departments. Treasury and energy, for example, were almost always represented. And in 1942, the oil workers' union was rewarded for their good behavior by the first of many bumps in their benefits package. All of this hints at the future codependence of the oil workers' union and the government. And by the government, really, I mean the PRI party. Following the playbook of Lázaro Cárdenas, the PRI held on to power in Mexico for 70 years with a political coalition made up of the strongest national unions and the strongest national industries. The unions brought organization and manpower. Industry brought the money. 
But pre-party leaders in government were constantly having to balance these competing interests, slapping down the unions when they grew too demanding, or shackling industry with bureaucratic rule after rule to ensure multiple points of government control over their business. Within Pemex, this struggle became fairly ritualized as early as the 1946 collective bargaining agreement. Typically, union leaders would make wild demands and stage theatrical street protests in the months leading up to each renegotiation. More often than not, the negotiation would be resolved by a modest bump to the union members' benefits package, and the union, in turn, would dutifully support the party at the next election, with manpower and with money. Occasionally, however, these disputes spilled out into the open, as in 1946, when the political balance was still precarious and the government and the oil workers' union were still feeling each other out. When the collective bargaining agreement came up for renegotiation in 1946, the oil workers' union flexed their muscles and carried out a work stoppage. But the pro-business gentleman president, as he was called, Miguel Avila Camacho, was unsympathetic. He brought in the army and busted the strike. He couldn't afford, however, to turn against the union outright, so the whole uproar was blamed on the union leadership, who dutifully fell on their sword, and both parties moved on. From 1946 on, Pemex's management practices and the relationship between management and the union settled into familiar patterns to anyone who has worked with the company in the last 70 years. First, senior managers of Pemex would be appointed by government officials, initially from within Pemex, though eventually from the political class itself. Second, day-to-day -day management of the organization fell to government-appointed and non-union personal de confianza, or trusted personnel, a style that persists to this day for non-union Pemex employees accountable to senior management. Third, by implicit and later explicit agreement, personnel de confianza, however, could not exceed 5-10% to 10 of all Pemex personnel. Fourth, investment decisions of the company would be made by Pemex's very political board, of which, recall, four of the nine seats were held by the oil workers' union. On the one hand, this heavily politicized investment decisions from the beginning. On the other, however, the majority of the board would always be held by administration appointees, or more often, actual administration members. The union then had input and was always a critical constituency when the PRI was in power, but it was not the final decision maker. No, the union had to wield its power through the biannual collective bargaining agreement renegotiations and through its control over Pemex's workforce. And so, fifth, the oil workers union was given ultimate authority over the allocation of personnel to all projects undertaken by Pemex. This, of course, left Pemex management without control over their own workforce. And, more importantly, for understanding the power dynamics within Pemex, it ensured absolute loyalty on behalf of the workforce to their union leaders. If they didn't toe the line, they didn't work. Sixth, union workers were divided into two classes. Plant workers referred to anyone who had more or less full-time employment, whereas temporary workers worked only on shorter-term construction projects or filled in as roustabouts on other jobs. There would later be a third sort of supernumerary class of employees working for third-party contractors, who for many years were required to use oil worker union-appointed personnel on all their Pemex contracts. These supernumeraries were not technically Pemex employees, but most aspired to be, giving the union leadership further influence over the industry, even beyond their immediate membership. Seventh and last... Union power coalesced around three centers of power corresponding to the three major areas of oil field activity in Mexico, Tampico in the north, Poza Rica in the south, and Minatitlan in the southeast. 
The unofficial custom was for leadership of the Union to rotate every three years among those three centers of power, which custom would hold until the 1960s when a particular individual from the Tampico bloc consolidated power. Operationally for Pemex, things had started to stabilize in the 1940s. By 1947, nine years after the expropriation, production had recovered to pre-1938 levels of almost 136,000 barrels per day. Largely, this had been accomplished by getting old and proven production back online, as only 159 wells had been drilled since the expropriation almost 10 years before, and of those, only 16% had been successful. Another way to look at this is to analyze the reserve-to-production ratio, or the RP ratio. The RP ratio tells you how many years it would take a given company to produce out its reserves if it produced them steadily at the rate they were producing today i.e., 100,000 barrels of reserves with a 10,000 barrel per year production rate yields a 10-year reserve-to-production ratio. In 1938, Mexico boasted a 29-year reserve-to-production ratio. In 1947, the ratio had dropped to 21 years, even as production had declined, confirming that by 1947, Pemex was simply monetizing its resources more quickly, rather than replacing them. But 1946 also saw the arrival of the man who, more than any other, would define Pemex for the next 50 years. In December of that year, incoming Mexican President Miguel Alemán had appointed the new senator and former mayor of Ciudad Juárez, Antonio J. Bermúdez, to be the general director of Pemex, a position he would hold for the next 12 years. It's hard to say in retrospect whether Bermudez's profile was perfect for the position or whether the position became what it became because Bermudez was the first to really fill it. Bermudez had started his career as a businessman, a bootlegger really, during Prohibition along the U.S. border, but also eventually became a successful real estate developer, so he knew what it took to make money and run a business. But as a politician and a party man, Bermudez also knew the importance of politics to his tenure and so carefully cultivated two successive presidential administrations who both decided to keep him in power. Indeed, much of his political success was attributable to his becoming the most articulate spokesman for the nationalist vision of Pemex, a vision that was much broader and more politically savvy than a simple businessman would have put forward. The first clear articulation of this vision came in his 1950 annual report, where he defined Pemex's mission in a six-fold mandate. Number one, to conserve the nation's resources. Number two, to, quote, rationally develop the nation's resources. Three, to provide refined products for internal consumption. Four, to improve the lives of oil workers. Five, to contribute income to the national treasury through the export of surplus products. And six, to create tangible benefits in the zones of oil field activity. But unlike a pure politician, Bermudez took measures to make this vision a reality. He understood that his vision was contingent on Pemex growing its revenues. His first mandate, then, was to put rigs in the air, which he did, undertaking an aggressive infill and step-out drilling program. By the end of his first six years in 1952, 1,511 wells were producing, almost double as many as were producing after the expropriation in 1938. The next step was to replace and grow reserves, something Pemex had been wholly unable to do since its formation in 1938. In 1953, Bermudez's Pemex began to achieve their first real exploration success, beginning with a dramatic extension of the Golden Lane Fields. As an aside, fittingly, these new fields were named after the then-recently deceased Ezequiel Ordonez, who had first discovered the Faja de Oro, or Golden Lane, some 40 years before. The Golden Lane extension would account for half of all the discoveries during Bermudez's tenure. 
Each successful well added, on average, 5.7 million barrels of reserves. Let me repeat that. 5.7 million barrels per well. And let me give it some context. Today, in Texas, 50,000 barrels of reserves from a 5,000-foot deep well would be quite a nice little find. The best, and I mean absolute very best, Eagleford wells promise maybe 2 million barrels of reserves. And those are press-release kind of numbers. Who knows how they'll hold up over time? All of which just confirms what a unique petroleum province Mexico really is. Bermudez's initiatives made Pemex a real ENP company, not just a national oil company collecting revenues. During his 12-year tenure, 1,621 wells would be drilled, and Pemex would leave behind a robust 42-year reserve-to-production ratio, producing 256,000 barrels per day and booking 4 billion barrels of reserves. Yet Bermudez was also savvy enough to realize that most Mexicans would judge his performance by what they experienced at the retail end of the market, rather than in his reserve reports. And so Bermudez did not neglect these critical and highly visible downstream investments either. Signaling a shift from the foreign oil company's focus on exporting products, during Bermudez's tenure, a 100,000 barrel per day refinery was placed into service in Mexico City. New refineries in Salamanca and Reynosa came online as well, also targeting domestic markets. When Bermudez took office in 1947, refining volumes had recovered to 1938 levels. But by 1958, at the close of his tenure, Mexico was refining three times as much crude as it was in 1938, allowing Pemex to begin focusing on more complicated petrochemicals such as ammonia and fertilizer. From 1947 to 1957, crude pipelines grew from 998 miles to 4,154 miles, linking the fields of Poza Rica to the refineries in Mexico City and Salamanca and the fields of Tampico to Monterey. Bermudez doubled the rail car fleet to 2,130 tank cars, tripled the truck fleet to 400 oil carriers, and added six barges to Pemex's 12-barge fleet. The natural gas pipeline business had started in Mexico in 1930, when Monterey Industrials had underwritten a pipeline to source natural gas from South Texas. But the natural gas industry in Mexico really began with the discovery in 1948 of the Mission Field near Reynosa, which also produced high-gravity condensate much needed for blending and refineries with Mexico's predominantly heavy crudes. By 1957, only nine years after the discovery of the Mission Field, Pemex had become a net exporter, exporting 132 million cubic feet per day to South Texas of the 720 million cubic feet per day that it produced throughout the country, up from a mere 71 million cubic feet per day when Bermudez had taken office. To process the rich gas coming out of Mission Field, a 300 million cubic foot per day gas processing plant with a 10,000 barrel per day fractionator was built in Reynosa in 1954, supplemented by a 270 million cubic foot per day processing plant with an 11,000 barrel per day fractionator in Poza Rica in 1955 and a 300 million cubic foot per day processing plant in Ciudad Pemex. These three areas remain the primary gas processing centers in Mexico in 2016. As you can see, Pemex didn't lack for investment opportunities. What it lacked more than anything was technology. Because Pemex had been cut off from world markets by formal or informal boycotts since 1938, they had to develop from scratch much of the technical expertise that left the country with the foreign oil companies. In some areas, such as E&P, this was unfortunate, but could be solved by time and money. In some areas, however, such as petrochemicals, it could be deadly. One of the more tragic efforts by Bermudez's Pemex to achieve full energy independence revolved around tetraethyl lead, which many of you know is an additive that was added to gasoline to prevent knocking in engines. 
Cut off from international markets for this additive after the expropriation, Pemex set about discovering how to synthesize tetraethyl lead by themselves. Though Pemex was ultimately successful, the cost was horrific, as some 32 workers would suffer lead poisoning in the process, and two of the lead scientists would die. Bermudez was not blind to the cost of developing these technologies from scratch. On the ENP side, he began to think creatively, to look for ways to bring in foreign technologies and foreign capital to help develop Mexico's oil fields. Though Bermudez would later become an outspoken critic of these so-called risk-sharing contracts, he was their initial author, and they met with some mild success. Following the expropriation, outright concessions to foreign oil companies were forbidden, but certain non-controlling and or, quote, risk-sharing investments were permitted. Indeed, a few private Mexican-owned natural gas concessions actually survived the expropriation. And in 1947, the Mexican arm of city service was actually awarded a, quote, financing and fee contract to explore for oil and gas in the northern Burgos Basin along the border with Texas. Under the terms of this contract, city service was allowed to export half the production they discovered, and the other half went toward paying off the indemnity owed to them from the expropriation. Texaco and a few other companies were also awarded similar, small-risk contracts for gas exploration in the north. The first risk-sharing contracts for oil exploration in Mexico's most prized fields were awarded in 1949. Sixteen contracts were let out, though only five went into effect, including several to Californian Edwin Pauli, who would kick around the Mexican oil field for almost a dozen more years. Under some versions of these risk-sharing contracts, Pemex would repay the contractor's investment in a guaranteed return of 15 to 18 percent over the 25-year life of the contract, but only if production from their fields covered those payments. Under other versions of the risk-sharing contracts, revenues were paid out at a flat per barrel fee over a 10-year term. It's hard for me to evaluate how successful these risk contracts really were. On the one hand, I find one source saying that they only ever constituted 2 percent of the production in Mexico at their peak. On the other hand, these risk-sharing contracts clearly brought crucial technologies such as mud motors that allowed Pemex to access deeper formations that they might never have discovered without them. In particular, the Macuspana fields of Tabasco in 1949-1951, which at one point would produce almost a third of all the gas in Mexico and proved to be the first of some 6 billion barrels of oil worth of discoveries in the region over the next 50 years. But the source I have claims that Edwin Pauli drilled the Chicalango and Tortuguero discovery wells in the Macuspana field and was paid 50 cents per barrel for 10 years from production for so doing. Again, I wish I could better assess how well these risk-sharing contracts worked in practice. You can't help but notice the correlation between the timing of the risk-sharing contracts and some of the major fines of the 1950s. I need better sources, but unfortunately, the risk-sharing contracts became a political hot-button in Mexico in the 1960s, and so much of the material I have is long on rhetoric and short on data. What I think ultimately made Bermudez turn on the risk contracts was that by the 1960s, his vision for Pemex as a national champion had become a reality. The existence of risk-sharing contracts by the 1960s undermined the mythology that had developed around Pemex, and if they truly did constitute only 2% of Mexico's production at the time, they could have been sacrificed without major effect, and the benefits of those technologies would have remained. Also, by the 1960s, joint ventures with the foreign oil companies were no longer necessary to access the latest and greatest technologies. No, those same technologies could be brought in through much less controversial service contracts from the growing oil field service industry. There is no denying that by the time Bermudez left office as general director of Pemex in 1958, 
he left behind a much stronger organization than he had found. He created the structure and established the organizational patterns that would define Pemex clear through the 2013 energy reform. But not all of these patterns were healthy, and many would lead to much larger problems down the road. First, price stability at the retail end of the market became an unstated policy of Pemex and the government. Price stability at the pump helped assuage concerns about stability with the currency itself, and it served as a national subsidy that benefited almost everyone except Pemex, but became a critical component to Mexico's sustained 6-8% annual economic growth over the period. Everyone listening to this knows, however, that the oil industry is a highly volatile commodity market. The costs of shielding the Mexican economy from these price swings would have dire effects on the long-term financial viability of Pemex. And this leads to the second not-altogether-healthy pattern that developed during Bermudez's tenure at Pemex. From 1946 to 1958, the subsidies required to ensure price stability would consume 10% of Pemex's budget. Taxes, however, would consume almost 25% and would account for almost a quarter of Mexican government revenues over the period. By 1958, Pemex had already become the major lever of economic policy for Mexico and would remain so, well, frankly, through the present day. Third, as a condition of subsidizing national retail prices, Pemex insisted on extending their monopoly to the import of all hydrocarbon products. This monopoly would eventually introduce all kinds of pricing inefficiencies, but more damagingly, would effectively inhibit Pemex from investing in the infrastructure necessary to produce first- and second-level petrochemicals themselves, from propane to ethylene. Because Pemex could almost always buy petrochemicals cheaper from the U.S. Gulf Coast than they could produce it themselves, the path of least resistance was always to import the transformed molecule under Pemex's monopoly and mark it up. It became a major profit center for Pemex, but it also served as an active disincentive to develop these processes internally something that would impose a real cost on Mexican manufacturing over the long term, as the reliability of the import of these products suffered under Pemex's supervision as well. The fourth and final troubling pattern that developed under Bermudez's tenure was the disproportionate growth of the oil workers' union and their benefits. Pemex would quickly become... Pemex would quickly become... Pemex would quickly become the largest employer in Mexico reaching 45,532 employees by 1958. Each successive collective bargaining agreement saw a ratcheting up of union members' benefits. For example, dedicated schools for union family members, preferred rate savings accounts, discounted mortgages, an independent health system that would eventually employ more doctors than any other health service in the country, farms and orchards, and most famously, a limited right by Pemex employees to bequeath their jobs to their children. Seriously. It had always been clear, since the expropriation, that Pemex would not serve a pure profit mandate. And again, let's revisit Bermudez's six tenets of his nationalist vision for Pemex. One, to conserve the nation's resources. Two, to rationally develop the nation's resources. Three, to provide refined products for internal consumption. Four, to improve the lives of oil workers. Five, to contribute income to the national treasury through the export of surplus products. Six, to create tangible benefits in the areas of oilfield activity. This multifaceted vision is beautiful, patriotic, and enough to make even the finest McKinsey consultant blush. Yet it lacks entirely any mention of profitability, 
that ultimate form of sustainability that allows an organization to do anything else. On Bermudez's six counts, Pemex wildly succeeded for many, many years. But it should come as no surprise then that perhaps the most important long-term trend established during Bermudez's tenure is that in the last four years of his so-called golden age of Pemex, the company lost money each and every year. In the next episode, Pemex will enter international credit markets as it begins to generate a trade surplus. The oil workers union will grow to reach the peak of its power and influence within Pemex and within Mexico, whose politicians will soon discover the power of a national oil company as a tool of social policy. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave feedback on iTunes, or you can download old episodes at www.brandonseal.com. This week, I'm recommending Antonio Bermudez's own account of his time in Pemex, called Doce Años al Servicio de la Industria Petrolera Mexicana. Nowhere does Bermudez better articulate the nationalist ideological vision for Pemex than he does in his own autobiography, and it is the starting point for any real attempt at understanding the great petrolera. Hasta la próxima.